Welcome to Coffee in an Interview. I'm Jacqueline Pena, and I'm here today with Richard Capriola, who is the author of The Addicted Child. Welcome, Richard. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to the program, Jacqueline. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you to talk about this topic. And I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, join me here and provide us this information, answer my questions, because addiction is such a difficult topic. It's an important topic for us to talk about. And many times we don't talk about addiction and children. And uh, it's a sensitive topic, but a very important one. So thank you for being here today. You're very welcome. And you're and you're absolutely right. This is a topic that's very difficult for parents. Many times uh, uh, they want to just uh, run away from it or hide from it or act as if it, it's not there. Um, but uh, but really, it's a topic that I think every parent can benefit from knowing a little bit more about and feeling more prepared. Knowledge is power. So mm -hmm. the more information that they have, hopefully the more comfortable they'll feel with this issue. And if confronted with it, uh, they'll, they'll have a game plan, so to speak, on, on how to deal with the issue. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So actually, now that you say that, why don't we get started? Tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump into the questions that we have about addiction and children. So what do you do? Who are you? And how did you end up in this space, in this space where you talk about addiction and children? I started out in the field of education and spent a long period of time as an education administrator for the state of Illinois. And as I transitioned out of that career after 30 some years, um, I began to work uh, at a mental health crisis center. It was a regional crisis center. And I noticed that a lot of people who were coming to the mental health crisis center uh, also had a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a degree uh, and training in addiction counseling. I then accepted a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital that serves both adolescents and adults from around the world. And I was hired as an addictions counselor for uh, both adolescents and adults. And I worked at Menninger for over a decade. Uh, during my time there, I met with many parents and I would sit down with them and I would go through their child's history of using a substance. What substances were they were using? When did they start? How often were they using? And give the family a diagnosis of what we call a substance use disorder. And so many times after I, after I met with them and talked to them, they would look at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. And these are good parents. These are good parents doing the best they can. They missed the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. So after I left Menninger, I wanted to write this resource, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. I kept it to around 100 pages because I know parents are busy. They don't have time to read volumes of information. So I kept it very concise with short chapters, but I packed it with a lot of information that I think parents will find useful and informational. Okay. I think uh, just, uh, you know, for, for the video per portion, we do have the book here as well. And this was a great read. So I want to thank you because even though I'm not a child, I am a caregiver and I love all the children in my life. And I find that this is 
very important information for all of us. Great. That's good to hear. And this book is, is appropriate for parents, for caregivers, for teachers, for aunts and uncles and grandparents, anyone who um, is involved with a, a child's life or is interested in knowing about this topic. Okay. So uh, actually, since we're jumping into the actual topic of the interview, addiction in children, what is your uh, take? We're going to talk about what is it that you think children are taking nowadays? What are some of the warning signs? But first, I want to see what's your take on addiction in children? Have things changed? Is it um, a huge issue? What are the percentages? Should we be scared? What are we looking at here? I don't think we should be scared. I think we should be knowledgeable. I think we should have the information, but we shouldn't be scared and we shouldn't be paranoid about this issue. But as a parent, we also shouldn't assume that this can't happen to our child because every child is vulnerable to being captured by alcohol or drugs. It doesn't matter where you live, urban, suburban, or rural area. It doesn't matter what your level of income is. It doesn't matter where you send your child to school all kids are vulnerable to being captured by alcohol or drugs. Uh, so I don't think as a parent, we should be paranoid about this. We should just be aware of it, know what the risks are, know what the dangers are, know what the warning signs are, and just be aware that kids, kids have access to these drugs. They know these drugs are out there. When we ask them, for example, when we ask high school seniors, how easy is it for you to find marijuana? Almost 80% of them tell us it's very easy for them to find. About 80% of them tell us it's easy to find alcohol. And about 30% of them tell us it's easy to find a drug like LSD. So these drugs are available and these kids know it. And the other issue is they don't think these drugs are very harmful. When we ask, uh, for example, high school seniors, how harmful is it, do you think, for somebody to smoke marijuana regularly? Only 30% of high school seniors tell us they think that's harmful. When we ask them, how harmful is it, do you think, having five or more drinks of alcohol once or twice a weekend, only about 36, 37% tell us that they think that's a great risk. So the drugs are available and kids don't think they're very risky. It's interesting. So you've mentioned a couple of different substances that kids are taking. Let's talk about this. What are the what are kids using? What are some of the from from the work you do? What are some of the drugs or other addictive substances that you see kids are abusing the most? Kids are still attracted to alcohol and marijuana. Those are the two primary substances that we see teenagers, teenagers using. And that's been true for a long, long period of time. And it's been fairly stable over the last 10 or, or, or so years. But what has changed significantly is what we refer to as vaping, where they'll take a substance like nicotine or marijuana, they'll use an instrument that turns it into a vapor, and they would they will inhale it. In the last three years, there has been a tremendous increase in the number of, of adolescents who are vaping. For example, three years ago, the percentage of high school seniors that were vaping marijuana was 9%. Today, it's 22%. The percentage of high school seniors three years ago that were vaping nicotine was 18%. Today, it's 35 
4%. So in the last three years, we have seen a surge, a tremendous and significant increase in adolescents who are turning to vaping nicotine and marijuana. Okay, and this topic is critical because we're talking about adolescents and teenagers, and there's a developmental component, right? where our bodies, our brains are still developing. And that's where part of the concern when it comes to some of these substances like alcohol and marijuana come into play. Can you tell us a little bit more about that um, in terms of brain development and the impact of abusing alcohol or marijuana when you're an adolescent or teenager? Yeah, that's a great point because one of the differences between adult addiction and adolescent addiction is brain development, the other one's consequences. But in terms of brain development, the adolescent brain is in the process of developing and maturing and growing and developing those circuits that will be so important when that child becomes an adult. Our brain doesn't become fully developed until around age 24 or 25. So when you start to introduce substances like alcohol or marijuana, into a maturing, developing brain, you run the risk of doing some, some really serious damage. So it's important for parents to know that their child's brain is, a, is in the process of maturing and growing and developing, and it needs to be protected. And drugs can do some significant harm to that developing brain. Interesting. So um, 24, 25, I think a lot of us don't think about that, but we don't think about the damage on the developing the brain on the developing brain. And I think that's part of why this conversation is so important. That's true. I don't think most parents recognize that they're, they may know that their child's brain is developing, but they may not know that it is a long-term process. You know, a child who's 17, 18, 19, their brain still is not fully developed. So parents just need to be aware of the slow process that the brain uses to develop and to protect that brain as much as they can. Interesting. And I think um, we're living in these strange times where we're in a pandemic, we're in what I call this hybrid part of the pandemic, where we went through lockdown, we tried to kind of find a new normal, we're in this hybrid, who knows what we'll look like after the Delta variant. Now, with addiction, abuse, alcohol and drug abuse, and children, adolescents and teenagers, have you seen any major changes because of the pandemic? Well, we have in the adult population, for example, we know that during the pandemic, alcohol use among women increased significantly. I think that in terms of mental health, we're just now beginning to scratch the surface to see how the pandemic has affected the mental health of adolescents. Uh, the CDC reported some time ago that since the pandemic began, there's been a significant increase in young children showing up in the emergency rooms needing mental health care, some type of mental health crisis. And I think we're just beginning to see how this pandemic has affected the mental health of, of adults, as well as adolescents. Adolescents have gone through a tremendous change as a result of this pandemic. They've been taken away from school. They've been taken away from their friends. They've been taken away from their activities. Now that they're getting back into the school system, some of these kids might have a little bit of a struggle and a challenge reintegrating back into the traditional classroom setting. And parents just need to be aware of that and sensitive to how they're children are reacting to all of this that's going on outside of the home. Mm, that's very interesting, Yeah, because I keep thinking about what, what is the impact and, and what trends are we seeing. 
And then in in our day to day, before the pandemic, now during the pandemic, post pandemic, there are always some warning signs when your child, your adolescent or teenager, is abusing a substance, whether it's alcohol or a drug, and or or abusing anything else. And so, what are some of those warning signs that parents can see, maybe teachers? or caregivers. Yeah. And that's a very difficult subject for parents because mm-hmm. it's 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 sometimes difficult to sort out well, well what's normal adolescent acting out behavior and what is a more serious indicator that there's something else going on below the surface. I have warning signs in my book for alcohol use. I have warning signs for marijuana use. There's warning signs for a child that might be developing an eating disorder or might be self-harming themselves because sometimes those accompany a child using a substance like alcohol and drugs. As a general rule, however, I recommend that parents pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. Pay attention to the changes that you see. Don't assume that these changes are normal adolescent acting out. They might very well be that, but they also might be an indicator that there's something else going on underneath the surface. The more these of these changes that you see and the longer they last, uh, the, the more concerning they can be. If they're brief and they're transitory and they come and they go, probably not too much to be concerned about. But if you start to see these changes linger on and then you start to see one and two and three changes changes, then I think there's something to be concerned about. Some examples would be a child that um, was very open and talkative now becomes very quiet and secretive. A child who used to enjoy sports no longer wants to participate or enjoy sports. A child who openly introduced you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You might have even known who their family members were. Now becomes very secretive about who their friends are. So these are some examples of change that we can see in children that we just need to be aware of. If they linger on and you start to see more and more of them, then it's probably concerning and you should get some assessments done to find out what's going on underneath the surface. Mm, that's good. It's important to look at warning signs. And some of these warning signs could be something else, but they're warning signs nonetheless. And I think we should be able to um, not ignore them, uh, look at them, pay attention, have the conversations. Yeah, and I think that's a good point to have a conversation with your child about it, not to accuse them of anything or threaten them or punish them. But if you're seeing something that you're concerned about, have a conversation with your child, approach it from an inquiring point of view. I'm seeing these changes. Can you help me understand why I'm seeing them and see if that might give you some more information about what you're seeing? And actually, you're leading to another great question, which is, what should you do if you're seeing these warning signs? And you just said one of those things is to have that conversation. Any other suggestions if we're seeing any warning signs um, based on the conversation we're having and based on your book? What should we do? Well, you're absolutely right. The first thing is to have a conversation with the child, uh, not to threaten them, not to accuse them of anything, but to approach it from an inquiring point of view. I'm seeing these changes. Can you help me understand why I'm seeing them? And, And to listen to not just your child's words, but their feelings. We're pretty good at listening to each other's words. Uh, We're not so good at listening to the feelings below the surface of those words. And that's a skill that every 
every parent can practice and every parent can learn. So that when we're talking to our child, we're, we're hearing not just their words, but we're hearing their feelings and we're reflecting them back to the child. You know, I'm sensing that you're feeling angry. I'm sensing that you're feeling depressed or sad and get feedback from your child. Um, but basically, it's an inquiring point of view. I'm seeing these changes. Can you help me understand why I'm seeing them? Now, that's a discussion that's likely to go one of two ways. It's either going to blow up and the child's going to become argumentative and defensive and angry, or it might go the other way and you learn some things. Regardless of how it goes, as a parent, if you're still concerned about these warning signs, you need to go to the next step. You need to get the assessments done that I've outlined in my book, one of which is an addictions assessment. And another one would be a psychological or a neuropsychological assessment to rule in or rule out whether or not there's some type of issues underneath the surface that might draw that you need to know about as a parent and, and, and may want to uh, uh, follow up on. Interesting. Okay, so these are great um, suggestions for the assessments. I think sometimes we're not even thinking about that particular process. We just want conversations, confrontations, uh, trying to read through journals, check out cell phones. And I think that it's important to look at what are the other factors that might be affecting your adolescent or teenager that leads to an abuse, to abusing something. And that's a very important point because the, many parents just want to look at the substance abuse and say, okay, let's take care of that. That's the problem. And, and they may be right. That might be the only problem, but there might be other problems as well uh, that your child is using a substance to medicate. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, many of the teenagers that I worked at with at Menninger Clinic uh, were using a lot of marijuana multiple times a day. And when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana, the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. It helps me calm my anxiety. So in some kids, not all kids, but in some kids, they're using a substance to medicate an underlying intolerable thought or feeling or memory. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's depression, maybe it's having been uh, bullied at school that the parents knew nothing about. But it's important to examine whether those issues are there for that child, because if they are there, you need to treat them as well as treating the drug use. You can't just <clears throat> you can't just treat the marijuana and not treat the anxiety. You have to treat both. Yeah, excellent advice. And actually <clears throat> perfect segue to the next question, which is treatment options. So definitely we want to treat the addiction and treat any underlying issues. What are some treatment options here if we're looking at different types of cases? I'm sure there are different options here. For there are different options because every child is different. Every diagnosis is different. Every situation is different. There is no one treatment that fits every child. It, it needs to be individualized. Some children will do very well in an outpatient program where they see somebody maybe once a week. Others will do well in what we call an intensive outpatient program where they may see somebody several times a week. And for some kids where the substance abuse is so severe and the underlying issues are so severe, <clears throat> they may be looking at a residential treatment program that could last several months. 
Wow. Okay. So there are different options, outpatient, residential, um, and they're tied to whether it's the addiction only we're going to treat or there's some underlying issues. That's right. And, 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 the, and the common thing among all of those treatment options is treatment works. Treatment works. I want parents to know that there's hope that their child and their family can recover from this. We know that treatment works. What's what's important is to match the treatment to the diagnosis so that the child is getting the help and the treatment that they need, given the issues that, that you're being confronted with. But treatment does work. And the other thing I would say is this is something that just doesn't affect the child. It infects the entire family system. So as a parent, you need to get a support system and have some help for yourself. Find a friend, find a family member, um, find a counselor, find a support group, find something that you can build a support system around yourself as you go through this with your child. And I hate to think in the negative side, but if we don't work on treatment, if we don't have hope in treatment or don't properly treat or do not use treatment options and rely solely on conversations, for example, or hope. What are the worst case scenarios? And I think I asked this question because I personally, my whole life has been uh, scripted in an addiction narrative. I don't know how to, to phrase that a little bit better, but I grew up with um, substance abuse, alcohol abuse in the household. I've had um, the addiction narrative around me from um, family members to very close people, um, dealt with it in marriage and post-marriage and, and everything else. So I find my, my life, I ha, I've been part of an addiction narrative for my whole life. So there's a, an addiction narrative here. And, and I'm, I'm wondering long-term, so if you have an adolescent or teenager who might have an issue and we don't properly um, consult or properly use treatment options that are available, what are the consequences? What could happen long-term? What Maybe what are the, some of the worst case scenarios and some of the best case scenarios and, and what can we do later on if we wait too long to address the issue? Well, the negative consequences can be catastrophic in some cases. I mean, children can actually die from an overdose of substances. They can get hurt, severely hurt under the influence of substances like alcohol or marijuana. And, and the longer you go without treatment or the longer you go without intervention, the more likely this is to become more severe and the consequences are more likely to become catastrophic. That may or may not occur during the adolescent years. It may filter into the adult years where it starts to become really significantly impacting a person's life and the people around them. Um, one of the differences between adult addiction and adolescent addiction is that adults who are addicted to a substance often face catastrophic consequences. These are not small consequences. These are catastrophic consequences. They may have lost a marriage. They may have lost a, a friends. They may have lost employment. They may have been incarcerated. These are catastrophic consequences that an adolescent may be facing in adulthood if we don't intervene as early as we can. Interesting. 
Um, as you're saying that, I'm also thinking about the kinds of substances we abuse or we could abuse or others abuse. And there's some that um, are more dangerous than others. I should say deadly. Let me say deadly. What are the deadliest substances that some of our adolescents and teenagers are using? Well, I think, you know, you know some of them are more lethal than others. Um, kids continue, as I said earlier, to use alcohol and marijuana. You, you can die from alcohol intoxication. Um, your child is um, uh, very prone to dangerous activities under the influence of any substance. They lose their perspective on, on what they can and what they can't do and sometimes engage in very dangerous activities. Um, there's not a lot of use in the hardcore drugs, but still four to 5% of kids are using something like LSD, 3% are using cocaine, uh, around one to 2% are using opiates. Um, some are abusing uh, prescription drugs like Ritalin and alcohol. Uh, some are using methamphetamine. Uh, and some are abusing over-the-counter drugs like cough medicine. So there's a whole range of, of drugs that are not being used as widely as alcohol and marijuana, uh, but can be just as damaging, if not more damaging, than, than alcohol or marijuana. Interesting. And I want to um, touch upon a couple of uh, items that I, I was surprised by when I when I read the book in terms of um, things that we're abusing or that we could be addicted to. For example, um, I was surprised by cell phone usage. So cell phones, <laughs> <laughs> the cell phone made its way to your butt. So tell us a little bit about these addictions that most of us might not see as dangerous, like the cell phone addiction. Yeah, there, there's a chapter in my book uh, entitled Process Addictions. Uh, there's chemical addictions and process addictions. Chemical addictions are the alcohol and the marijuana and the drugs. Process addictions are more behavioral addictions. Examples are uh, eating disorders, uh, self-injury, um, video gaming, um, and cell phone use, for example, those are all process addictions. And they can have the same chemical reactions in the brain that the alcohol and drugs do. They all increase um, uh, drugs in our brain that help us feel pleasure, that help us feel uh, happy. So uh, when a child is using a video game or they're on their cell phone, a lot of the things going on in the brain are the same things that are going on when they're using alcohol or drinking marijuana. They're getting a pleasurable feeling from the activity. But they can become compulsive, and you can actually lose control. Um, the, the, a study that was done by Facebook that recently came out um, concerning, uh, I think it was uh, one of the applications that kids have access to, kids reported that they did recognize that they were spending an excessive amount of time on the application, but they had a very difficult time putting it down and walking away from it. That's a loss of control, which is characteristic of addiction, a loss of control. Um, but these video games, these cell phones, uh, these applications on cell phones like TikTok and some of the others that they're getting involved 
involved in, these can be really problematic for families because kids get obsessed with them and they and they can interfere with other activities. They can interfere with schoolwork. They can interfere with uh, personal interactions with friends. They can also be dangerous from time to time. But yes, this is becoming more alarming for parents, the amount of time that kids are, are spending on their phones and some of the applications that kids have access to on their phones uh, can be very concerning for parents. Just I learned a new thing um, in this conversation and reading the book, which is process disorders or process addictions. And that that was new to me. I think I've seen excessive use that interferes with everyday life when it comes to like video gaming, for example. But I hadn't thought of these as um, addictions, maybe abuse, but not necessarily addictions. And um, and then I lived through a few of those and, and, and still didn't have the language or could make the connection. Yeah, and, and it can be a difficult connection for parents to make. And the line between, you know, what's acceptable and what, what is excessive is a fine line. But but many times parents know. They, they know that their child is becoming obsessed with their cell phone or their applications because it's starting to interfere with family time. It's starting to interfere with schoolwork. And, and parents get into a real debate and a struggle and argument with their child about putting the phone down. You know, you've got to finish your schoolwork. You've got to engage with the family and with friends. And the kid just wants to constantly be on their cell phone. It can create quite a dilemma and a conflict within the family itself. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But thank you for sharing that. And so we've, we've, kind of, we've been mentioning a lot um, this actual book, The Addicted Child. And I figured let's just take a few minutes to talk about it. We've mentioned it so many times, talked about what's in there. Is there anything else that we should know about The Addicted Child, this book that you wrote to help parents, which is also very useful for teachers and caregivers? I think it is useful for parents, for caregivers, for teachers, uh, anyone who interacts with adolescents, or or even if your child is a preteen, a pre-adolescent, I think it can be a valuable resource. It's available as a Kindle. It's also available as a paperback. Uh, there's also an accompanying parent workbook that's available for parents that uh, focuses on helping them process some of the feelings that they might have. Um, it's really intended to be a concise uh, book that gives parents the basic information that they need on adolescent substance abuse, something that they can read very quickly, something that they can keep on their bookshelf, or maybe loan to a friend that might be struggling with them. But the bottom line is knowledge is power. And the more we know about this topic, the less paranoid we become, the less afraid we become, and the more confident we become that if we're confronted with this this issue, we'll be able to deal with it. And that's the purpose of the book. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, knowledge is power. And, and this book helps in that in that sense. Um, for those of you listening to this episode, the link to the book and links to other resources are available in the description section of these of this particular episode. It doesn't matter which platform you're using. You'll be able to click on the link or copy and paste the link into a browser into your favorite browser and see the resource yourself. So uh, thank you for this resource. And actually, I I want to throw something back out to our listeners, which is we've had quite an intense conversation today about addiction. 
childhood addiction. We're looking at adolescents, you mentioned preteens and also teenagers. And um, we've dived into a lot of different areas around this topic. But if you have any other questions for Richard, if there's anything else you want us to explore in this conversation, let me know my contact information. And his is also in the description section for this episode. Let us know because we can set up another podcast episode or even better, a coffee and an interview live where we get to answer some of these questions. Or we can reach out and meet with you um, to address any personal questions that are not meant for us to address in this public forum. But the conversation can continue if you would like to learn more. Um, and so with that, Richard, let me ask if you have any other strategies, tips, words of advice, or if you want to share anything else with us that I didn't get a chance to ask you today. Well, I would say that um, I've seen some tremendous success stories uh, working with, with young adolescents who have both a, a substance abuse issue and a mental health issue that they're dealing with. Most of them came into the hospital fighting and arguing and negotiating. They didn't want to be there. They, they tried to bargain their way out of it. But their parents held firm and, and insisted that they come in for an assessment and treatment. And although they came in very oppositional and very angry, I watched them settle down and get engaged in the assessment and the treatment. And I watched them show some tremendous, tremendous improvement and progress. Some of them went on for a long term treatment program. And uh, those that I know about uh, came back and reported that they had gone through the program, they had gone off, uh, graduated from uh, high school, went to college and, and had very successful careers after college. So those are the kind of success stories that we know uh, can happen when treatment is, is, is brought into a young person's life. Treatment works. Um, and, and, and there is success stories out there. So I would encourage parents to uh, learn as much as you can, get a copy of the book, read about it, uh, become better informed. You can also go to the book's website, which is helptheaddictedchild.com, helptheaddictedchild.com. You'll be able to read endorsements and reviews. You can read a sample chapter. There'll be a link that'll take you to Amazon where you can purchase the book as a Kindle or paperback. Um, and there's uh, also a link where you can uh, contact me if you want to. Uh, but also, as you said earlier, if anyone listens to this and they have questions that we didn't address or issues they would like us to address, if they'll let you know, I'll be more than happy to come back and we can talk about them. Thank you. And thank you for leaving that offer on the table of coming back and addressing any additional questions or concerns. It is a, a difficult topic. Uh, it's difficult whether the addiction is in children or adults, to be honest. But I think when we talk about preteen, adolescent, and teenage addiction, it's just one of those conversations that I don't have enough. Um, and I think it's critical because we have an opportunity to help our youth be more successful, especially as they navigate this difficult social and economic changing landscape of the pandemic and everything else that's going on in the world. Yes, it's a tough time for kids, but it's also a challenging time for families. Yes, I agree. And for all of you listening to the episode, thank you for listening to the whole thing. Again, all these um, resources, websites, book links, all of this is in the description section of the episode. And Richard, I just want to thank you so much for devoting so many years to this difficult profession, for sharing your knowledge with us 
in your book and through other resources and for joining me today for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for inviting me and for participating in the discussion and your excellent questions. I think they help make for what I hope is a more informative uh, discussion for everybody who listens. So thank you for your time and thank you for participating in the discussion with me. Thank you and have a great day. And thank you everyone for listening to Coffee in an Interview.